0: We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I'd like to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Read with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) If you're new to West Hills, what we essentially do, fundamentally do on Sunday mornings is preach through God's Word. Um, We take a book of the Bible and fundamentally just kind of exposit it, just kind of allow it to speak to us. Sometimes we'll pull away from that and do a short topical series, but even then, it's the Word of God and generally one passage of Scripture that drives our thoughts, because we want for the Lord to be the. We want His opinions, not mine. We want His ideas, His thoughts... And he's given them to us in his word. And so thank God for his word. And we have been um, about two months now into First Peter. We're just going lickety-split through this little epistle. <laughs> but uh, it's been good for me. I trust that the Lord has made it good for you as well. Did you know that every one of you has a worldview? Every one of you has a worldview, whether you know it or not. A worldview is essentially how you answer several very fundamental questions. First of all, where did I come from? deals with origin. Secondly, what is the meaning or purpose of life? And specifically, what is the meaning or purpose of my life? And so that has to do with meaning. Thirdly, how do we know what's right and what's wrong? That has to do with morality. And then lastly, what happens after we die? It has to do with destiny. So origin... Meaning, morality, and destiny are the four main components of a person's worldview. You have one. It's been developed. Either you have thought it through carefully, or just kind of by osmosis, you've developed a worldview. Now in the verses that we're looking at this morning from Peter's first epistle, he doesn't give us a complete worldview, but he does give us some of the key components that I would suggest should be a part of a Christian's worldview. I don't think that was necessarily Peter's intention when he wrote his epistle. But lo and behold, that's exactly what he gives us. When Peter writes in the verses that we're looking at this morning, he essentially helps us to answer some very basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And how should I live? Who am I? And then corporately, who are we? Why are we here? How should we live? This whole section is set apart from what comes before it with the words, but you. Now, you'll recall last week, those of you who were here, we talked about Jesus being the cornerstone and we are living stones. And then he talks at the end of chapter one about those who have rejected Christ, those who say no to Jesus. He says, For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, of course, it was many of the Jews of Jesus' day who were the first to reject the cornerstone. They wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they wanted to put him to death, and they did. They stumbled over him. They found Jesus to be offensive. And that's still true for those today who reject Christ, who find him offensive. Jesus is offensive to their pride. He is offensive to their sense of self-righteousness. He is offensive to their moral code. He is offensive to their idea of what God should be like. And so they reject him. Jesus offends those who don't believe. Jesus is offensive. Incredibly so. And so people are bothered by him. And as a result, they disobey the word, Peter says. Meaning they reject the gospel through their unbelief. God says, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And they say, thanks but no thanks. We really could care less about your son. But it's in contrast to those people that Peter now turns in verse 9 and says, but you. You who are in Christ. You who have come to Jesus. You who have believed in him. By grace through faith. You haven't stumbled over the cornerstone. You're standing on the cornerstone. You don't find Christ to be offensive. Rather, now you know just how offensive your sins are to a holy God. You don't turn away from Christ in disgrace with a sense of being disgraced by him. Rather, you embrace him. And so Peter is helping his readers to answer the first question, "Who am I?" which has to do with your personal and your corporate identity. So point number one: who, who are you? When you look in the mirror in the morning, who do you see? When we gather together on a sunny morning, you look around this room, who do you see? Who are these people? Keep in mind, Peter's writing to believers, those who've said yes to Jesus. So the things that we're going to look at this morning are true for you if you have trusted in Christ. If you haven't, the things we're going to look at this morning are not true of you, but they can be, they could be. You simply need to come to Christ and believe in Him. And then all the things we're going to look at this morning are yours, just as they belong to many in this room who have trusted in Christ their Lord and Savior. And let me just say as we go through these, every one of these is really a big deal. Every one of these characteristics that we're going to look at to answer this first question, who am I, is really, really significant. So think carefully about yourself because I want, I want you to be able to look in the mirror in the morning, tomorrow morning when you get up and stumble into the bathroom and turn on the light and look at yourself. You're just going to have these amazingly glorious thoughts of who you are, right? Probably not, but... I hope that becomes the case for you. First of all, he says, you are chosen. You are chosen. But you are a chosen race, he says. You're God's chosen people. And you say, Pastor Gary, I thought that was, that was just the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They were the chosen people. Well, Peter's actually using what the Lord said to the Israelites through Moses 3,500 years ago and saying it's now true of Christians, and by the way, you always want to keep in mind the big picture, okay? Peter here is writing 2,000 years ago. He's going to quote scripture from, from, from 1,500 years before him, Moses. Then he stands at the time of Christ, first century essentially, first century. And he says, they were the chosen people. You are too. And then we stand way over here 2,000 years later And the Holy Spirit says, and it's true of you as well. So you always want to see God's big picture, the panorama. See, we're right here in this little tiny thing called 2017. I said last week, we are a pixel of a pixel of a pixel of a pixel. A dot inside a dot inside a dot. But friends, brothers and sisters of Christ, we're a part of this massive panorama of God's story of redemption. He was doing it in Israel. He was doing it in the New Testament through Peter and Paul and James and John, and he's still working it out today. And so as we read through these things, just sort of keep that in mind. That's, that's, a, that's extra, extra stuff. You didn't have to pay for that. So 3,500 years ago, God spoke through Moses to the Israelites. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Then Peter says to those to whom he was writing who had come to faith in Christ and believed in him, you are the true Israel. In the same way God chose Israel to play a special role in the plan of redemption, now it's Christians. Now it's the church. Now it's the body of Christ. And like Israel, you're not chosen because of any merit of your own. Therefore, there's no room for boasting. Moses went on to tell the Israelites It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, the promise that he swore to your fathers. There is something very crushing to human pride to know that one's salvation is based on the sovereign electing purposes of God and not on anything wonderful about yourself. That's just marvelous to me. I'm not taking away human responsibility. Don't misunderstand me. Um, Great, great book that was written a number of years ago by J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. In other words, people have a responsibility to make a decision to believe in Christ and God is sovereign over that whole process. But I just marvel at the fact that I cannot boast that I was more intelligent or more spiritual or more anything than my neighbor or a member of my family who has yet to trust in Jesus. Say, well, surely God chose us because we're better. No. He chose us because we have tremendous potential. That's not it either. Well, he chose us because in his omniscience, he could see that we were going to be faithful and obedient. No, sorry. We're pretty unfaithful and pretty disobedient a lot of the time. God says, I chose you because I wanted to. God says, I chose you because I'm sovereign. God says, "I, I set my mercy on you because I wanted to set my mercy on you. Apostle Paul said the same thing to the Christ followers in Corinth, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what's foolish to shame the wise. God chose what's weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's wonderful. Thank God that he did that. Then he says you're a chosen race. In other words, you are God's new race of people, a race that's not based upon the color of your skin or your ethnicity. This chosen race is a new people created by God from all peoples, all colors, all cultures, all tongues, all tribes, all dialects. See, God doesn't have a white race and a black race and a brown race and a yellow race and a a yellow race and a red race. God's race has nothing to do with color. I was having fun imagining this week, and sometimes this is when I get my chuckles. I'll be sitting in my office and I'll just find myself laughing out loud at these wonderful ideas that I have. But I was wondering maybe in heaven, God, with his wonderful sense of humor, when he gives to all of us our new immortal bodies, will give each of us a color different than what we are in this life. Wouldn't that be so cool? That would just be so amazing to me, you know? You'd get there and you'd look at your new body and say, "Uh, Lord, I've got the wrong button. No, you don't. No, you've got got exactly the one I wanted you to have. I don't know. So, who am I? You're part of God's chosen race. And then he says, you're a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Once again, Peter's reaching back to Moses. What God said to the Israelites, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, i.e. royal priesthood. You say, well, what does it mean to be priests? Several things. The priest had access to God. So do you. Through Christ, our great high priest, you can now draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Not in your own merits, but on the merits of your high priest. Secondly, priests offer sacrifices. So do you. You offer your body as a living sacrifice. You offer sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We looked at this last week. You offer offer God through Christ acts of kindness and love, shoeboxes, caring for orphans, reaching out to your neighbor who's going through a hard time. Acts of love, that's a sacrifice. Who am I? You belong to a royal priesthood, says Peter. Next, you're holy. What does holy mean? Set apart. Doesn't mean perfect. Doesn't mean without sin. It means set apart. You've been set apart by God for God. <clears throat> set apart under the Lord. Set apart from the ungodly world system. Set apart from your old ways. Because God is holy, he makes his people holy. Next, you belong to God. Verse 9 a people for his own possession, it says. And then further down. Verse 10, you are God's people, a people for his own possession. Possession means something that belongs to the owner because it's been purchased. That's the idea of the word possession. It belongs to the owner because it's been purchased. It's been bought. A price was paid to acquire possession. And what does 1 Corinthians 6 say? You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Which makes you God's possession, because He's the one who paid the price. You all know the story of the gingerbread man? You know the little girl who baked the gingerbread man, and as she was taking it out of the oven, getting ready to put on the finishing touches with the buttons in the face, it jumps up off the pan and jumps off the table and runs out the door and says, "Run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me on the gingerbread man." And he's gone. Look at his split. It's gone. She goes out looking for him. She can't find him. She goes out the next day, walks down the street, happens to walk by a bakery and looks in in the picture window, and there's her gingerbread man in the window of the bakery. And she runs into the store and finds the owner of the bakery and says, that's my gingerbread man. I made him. He's mine. And he says to the little girl, did you see the price next to him? If you want the gingerbread man, now he's mine. You've got to pay a price. She says, no, you don't understand. I made him. He's mine. He says, I'm sorry, if you want want your gingerbread man, you've got to pay the price. And so she runs home, cracks open her piggy bank, takes all the pennies and nickels and dimes out, puts them in her pocket, runs back to the bakery, goes into the store, pulls all of her coins out, dumps them on the counter, and says, I want to buy my gingerbread man that I made. And he gives it to her, and she leaves the bakery, clinging her gingerbread man in her hands, and says, now you're really mine. First I made you, and now I've bought you. Friends, that's what God says to you. Now you're really mine. First I made you, and now I've bought you. You belong to God. Who am I? You are God's possession. Next, you've been relocated, Peter says. Not a job relocation, a faith relocation. It says you've been called out and called into called out of a realm into a new realm, called out of the realm of darkness into the realm of his marvelous light. Spiritual darkness, out of spiritual darkness, out of moral darkness. Have you ever asked yourself why people love darkness? Jesus tells us, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Why? Because their works were evil. In other words, I like the darkness because no one can see me. I like the darkness because I'd be ashamed if others saw what I was doing. I like the darkness because I don't want to get caught. I like the darkness because my deeds are evil. That's when I like the darkness. And friends, we don't even know how dark the darkness is until someone turns on the light. Then you know how dark the darkness was. You don't know how dirty the room is until you turn on the lights. And you look under the bed and see all those little fuzzy, dusty things. You didn't know there were cockroaches in the kitchen until you turned on the lights. You didn't know there was danger lurking in your path until you turned on the lights. But then on the flip side, you didn't know how beautiful things could be until there was lights. You're standing in the pre-dawn darkness of Yosemite or on the rim of the Grand Canyon or on the north shore of Kauai in the pre-dawn darkness. Then the sun begins to rise and God turns on the light and with every single passing minute the sky becomes brighter and you're able to see the glory that was always there. You just couldn't see it because you were standing in the darkness. Peter says, Peter says, we were standing in the darkness of our own sin. We were standing in the darkness of our depravity. We were standing in the darkness of our corruption. And we were standing in a world filled with darkness. And God called us out of that into his marvelous light. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And Paul says in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So, answer to the question, who am I? You're someone that God has relocated from one realm to another by his grace. He didn't have to do that, did he? He didn't have to do any of these things, but he has. Then he says you've been shown mercy, verse 9. You have received mercy. God has shown you his undeserved kindness. He saw you in your misery. Now understand, God God shows general mercy to everyone in the world. God shows his general mercy to everyone. That's why he is so patient. Peter later on, I think it's his second epistle, says uh, God is not slow in keeping his promise as some charge him of being slow. No, he's He doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want people to perish. That's why it's taking him so long to wrap this thing up. He doesn't want your relatives and your friends and your neighbors to perish. That's his general mercy. And then he turns turns to those who are chosen and, and extends to them very specific mercy by removing you from the misery of all of your sins and your lostness. The Lord is merciful and gracious, Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful, full of mercy and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And then this last one, because we're 11 days from Thanksgiving, I just decided to say, you're pilgrims. You're pilgrims. Okay, you're sojourners, exiles. But doesn't pilgrims sound better? Isn't it easier for you to understand? People without a homeland, people who are traveling through on their way to a different country. Pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, people in search of a better place to live. We've all seen the footage of exiles being forced from their villages in the Middle East, looking for a new place to call home. See, friends, we need to develop the mindset mindset of an exile. An exile thinks about the essentials. An exile thinks about what's most important for the journey. What do I especially need to make sure I'm taken with me? I've got to leave a lot behind. There's not a lot I can carry with me. What will my kids need in order to survive this journey? What will my grandkids need? That's what I want to bring. An exile is looking to the future with hope for something better. The writer of Hebrews tells of all those who have gone before us in the faith. He writes this: these all died in faith. Again, keep in mind the panorama. All he's talking about—all these people back here—who've died in the faith and now here we are a couple, two, three thousand years down the pike these all died in faith having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The mindset of a pilgrim, the mindset of an exile needs to be ours. So friends, that's who you are if you're a born-again Christian. If you've come to faith in Christ Jesus, you're part of a chosen race, part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation or a holy people, God's own possession, you belong to him, you've received God's mercy, you've been relocated, and you are going through this life as a pilgrim. Which leads to the second question, well then, why am I here? Deals with your life purpose. Why am I here? Peter tells us, verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God, That you may proclaim how excellent God is. What's my life purpose as a follower of Jesus? To proclaim how excellent Jesus is. That you may proclaim, he says. What does proclaim mean? What does it involve? Speaking, telling, declaring, using words. The Christian faith is a faith of proclamation, the announcement of good news, telling the story, telling, helping people to see that 2017 is a part of a bigger panorama, helping people to understand why the world is the way it is, shining light for other people to get an idea as to why there are shootings and why there are wars and Why there are orphans. And why there is hope. Why there is hope. Proclamation. Telling fellow beggars where to find food. Telling the sick where there's a hospital. Telling those who are trapped in a burning building how to get to the one fire escape. See, brothers and sisters, your faith requires proclamation. My faith requires proclamation. That you may proclaim the excellencies. Otherwise, you are just another relatively decent person who happens to go to church on Sundays. And specifically, what does Peter say that we are to be proclaiming? The excellencies of God. And so that is to become the overarching purpose of my life, to use my days to figure out ways to proclaim how excellent God is, to make much of Him, To not be ashamed to talk about him with others. Is it not a strange and disturbing thing how the enemy and our flesh convince us and how the world intimidates us to keep our mouths shut? To talk about everything except the Lord. To post and tweet about things in life that are absolutely of no consequence whatsoever. To seal our lips and to put our tongues into lockdown. How is that? Psalm 145, in my reading through the scriptures, I was in Psalm 145 this week, and it just jumped out at me. This is a psalm about proclamation. I will extol you, my God. I put in red, obviously, obvious reason. These are the words about proclaiming the excellencies. I will extol you, my God and King. Bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. The Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts Good to all, mercy over all that he's made. All your works shall give thanks. Your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Tell of your power. Make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Psalm 145, Psalm of Proclamation. And a song of commitment. Basically, the psalmist is saying, This is how I will spend my life. Give yourself a little exam, and trust me, it's not a fun exam to to go through because I've done it myself. When in the past seven days did you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? When? How many times did you tell, proclaim, declare the excellencies of God to others? Charles Wesley, in his famous hymn, says, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Say, Lord, you've given me one tongue. You've given me one tongue, and I have trouble using it. I'm not sure what I would do with a thousand. Assist me to proclaim. That should be, that should be my prayer every day. My gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim. Thirdly, the third part of a Christian's worldview, how then should I live? How should I live? It has to do with your personal character. It says, 11, 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so he goes out of this whole section where he answers, Who are you? Okay, this is who you are. Then this is how you should live based upon that. Abstain, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Let me give you three guiding principles that come out of these last two verses. Number one, guard your soul. How should you live? You should live as to guard your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We are a culture that is obsessed with our bodies not our souls. Some of it is obviously necessary. Some of it, not so much. I feed my body. I wash it. You exercise it. You clothe it. You pamper it. You give it vitamins and minerals and antioxidants. You watch its weight. You check its vitals. You inoculate it. Give it x-rays, ultrasounds, MRIs. Give it an annual physical exam. You tend to its aches and pains. You fix it when it gets broken. You do 101 things to keep it safe from all harm. You deodorize it, cologne it, perfume it, make it smell and look as good as you possibly can before you take it out in public. And then when people tell you how good you look, you decide that it's all been worth it. And you continue to give a significant amount of your time and attention and monetary resources to your body. And then even in death, we dress it up so that people will walk by the casket and say, she looks so good. And I want to say, she's not here. (laughs) We are a culture that worships the body to the utter neglect of the soul. Do you nourish your soul? Do you give it vitamins? Do you exercise it? Do you protect it from harm? Do you guard it? Do you watch out for it? If it's exposed to things that are toxic, do you protect it? Do you check its vitals? When your soul gets damaged, do you tend to it? Friends, your soul is the core of your being, the essence of who you are. You have to ask, what if if we were to give half, no, a third, no, 10% as much attention to the soul as we do to the body. Frankly, Jesus gave so much more attention to the soul than he did to the body. Jesus said, what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits the soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Then you got the, the rich barn builder. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. All those things have to do with the body. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul, is re- not your body, your soul is required of you. And Peter's saying here, your desires are waging war against your soul. And so you've got this new life in Christ. Your soul's been saved, made new in Christ. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. But it's still living in your unredeemed body with all of its desires which create this incredible potential for a war against your soul new versus old new life in the spirit old life in the flesh therefore if you don't abstain from the desires of the flesh they will take over and your soul will inevitably suffer Your desire for sexual pleasure takes over. Your desire for the things of the world takes over. Your desire for money. Your desire to make much of yourself. Your desire to get even. Your desire to vent your anger. Your desire to gossip, slander, deceive, exaggerate. Those things take over. And without you being aware of it, all of these desires that are given freedom to do their own thing in your life are waging war against that which is most important. And so your soul gets choked. And your soul gets bruised and your soul gets beat up and your soul gets neglected. You don't give it any attention. And then you wonder why you don't resonate with the psalmist when he writes in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. And you wonder, why isn't that true of me? Therefore, the second principle, Peter says, you've got to govern your behavior. Govern your behavior. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct honorable. Because your behavior, your conduct, has a direct impact on your soul. And by guarding your soul and governing your behavior, then your ultimate objective is not about showing others how great you are, Your ultimate objective is to show others how great and wonderful God is. The third one, glorify God. Guard your soul. Govern your behavior. Glorify God. Keep your conduct honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation so that they become God-glorifiers with you. You see, friends, you you govern your behavior so that when you do get up the nerve to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, the words that come out of your mouth will not be a contradiction to your life. You will be proclaiming with your words and it will be backed up by your life, your conduct. Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. I like what John Piper said in this regard. If we live our lives in such a way that they don't point people to the glory of God, then our lives are without positive significance from a Christian standpoint. What we become is just an echo of a God-neglecting culture. We fit into the world so well that our lives don't point beyond the world. We are no longer aliens and strangers, but simply conforming citizens of the God-ignoring world. Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? Let me encourage you this week. Spend some time rethinking these things. Spend some time thinking about your personal worldview as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray together, and then we're going to share in the Lord's table. If you're here this morning, and, and the things that I've shared sound maybe almost too good to be true that this could actually be true of you and I'm here to tell you it can be all the things that I've taught this morning from the word of God are his truth and all of these things he has provided through his son the Lord Jesus Jesus would speak to you this morning come to me Come to me right where you are. Come. Come and trust me. Come and believe. Help me to make sense out of your life. Help me to give you, allow me to give you hope for the future as well as the present. I'm here to forgive you of your sins. I'm here to be your God and your Savior, your Shepherd, your newfound King. Would you receive Christ today? The Bible says to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. I would love for you to become a child of God today. Receive him by faith. Believe in him, trust him. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Help my unbelief. I receive you. Help me to understand all that this means. I confess to you my need. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Father, for the rest of us, for those of us who have professed your Son as our Savior, we would ask for the Holy Spirit to take these truths from the epistle of Peter and sink them into our minds and our hearts and our wills into our soul make them to go deep within us so that when we do look in the mirror we will see who we are who we really are we can then live accordingly and bring glory to God Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for us. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for going to the cross. You made us, Lord. And now you've bought us. You bought us with a great price. Today we remember that. We celebrate that. We commemorate that. We pray in Christ's name.